Welcome back to The Stack. This week, we speak with Ted Blackman, engineering manager at Toulon. We discuss robot opera, inertial navigation systems, Y Combinator, the failure of gesture-based computer interfaces, and the looming release of the remote scribe protocol, which promises, upon release, to complete the system of German idealism. What is robot opera, you ask? Well, I take you to task for not knowing that robot opera is the hottest thing going. Hottest, that is, when the heat sinks are failing from a full Greek chorus of Talos's wailing. The libretto is written by GPT-3, the conductor, two arms from a car factory. Asimo is charged to sing the bass part, a Roomba, the mezzo-soprano's high art. Then, from a smart fridge, the ending ensues. But don't call her fat. She's fat 32. What say you to some news? First, the good people of Dalton continue to deliver fire from the gods. Odds are, if you're an oddball on the network, you've already seen their art project entitled An Octopus, in which people gave an AI a prompt for the specific flavor of octopus they wanted, with a color, an art style, and a wild imagining of some sort, and 500 or so octopuses, no octopi, no octopodes, no cactuses were made. It is hinted that in the fullness of time, the community will vote on their favorite octopuses to be made into NFTs, as if there weren't already enough of those in the world. I charge you all with the task of voting for one of mine when you see it. I intend to ride to fame and fortune on the back of the big-titty goth girlfriend octopus. And Silo, by Hunter Miller and the gang, brings a very attractive interface for interacting with your S3 bucket. You can upload files, copy URLs, and delete all from inside your orbit. And you can view your files and photos in a tiled grid, just like the gallery on your phone, thereby adding a whole new layer of difficulty when showing off your orbit to people at work. Now, our conversation with Ted Blackman. Is a shakedown? Is it usually like fifty bucks, a hundred bucks, or I think that's pretty common. But they just size you. They friends, size you up and see what you could pay. I think it's more the latter, yeah. Because a couple of my friends yeah, yeah. got shaken down for like three or four hundred bucks, which I thought was excessive. Yeah. Uh, for, for the crime of being right. Yeah. Well, you know, walking while gringo. But um, and I, I mean, like now that all these shitcoiners are down in Mexico City, hopefully they don't get wise to the fact that these these people are like multimillionaires, but it's all on a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it was it is a little strange to be hanging out with those guys. Uh, they also don't, you know, when I think of those people, I don't think of them as being worth a lot of money, but they are. Uh, right. So, I think a lot. Of I don't. I think they, young, they haven't internal. They they because they haven't internalized it themselves yet. You know, I mean, it's and it's like not even like a nouveau riche, right? Um, lottery. Th- I mean, it's it, it's it's a weird. Yeah, yeah. I think part of that is also that all their net worth is in magical internet money, and so their purchasing power goes up and down wildly all the time. So that does That's engender true. a sort of frugality. And they don't want to, I mean, they're hodlers, right? They're not, they're not trying to spend, I mean, like that, that would defeat yeah. the entire, entire purpose. Yeah. I mean, all of the shitcoiners I know are Bitcoin maximalists. So they go and they do their, you know, mercenary work 
working on solidity contracts and ETH. And then they take all their winnings and put it back into BTC. <laughs> so I don't know how common that is. I think that's actually probably pretty common among that among that group. So yeah. they see how the sausage is made. They're not under right. any illusions as to what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's probably right. I mean, like they're they're definitely not like um, the greater fool in the ecosystem, right? I mean, like it's it's all getting dumped on it, but it's it still is alive and well. A, f- a friend of mine um, from grad school, he had um, you know worked in sort of a corporate finance career and then left to work for one of the more mainstream. I, I won't name it, but like kind of like a mainstream shitcoin with like corporate backing, like Boeing or whatever. So the um, and that may identify it in itself. But the uh, uh, then he like left, and you know, so I asked him recently. I was like, "What are you? What are you up to? What are you doing?" So he's launching his own thing. I was like, oh, "Okay, like you know, do you have the white paper?" And he's like, "No one does that shit anymore." You know, it's. <laughs> You basically <laughs> like just go out. <laughs> They're not even pretending. You just go out and like, yeah, you just go out and like ask the usual suspects for money and everyone knows how the uh, the game is played and all the more power to them. So, how do you, um, do you, how do you get work done where you are? Well, actually, so I just switched from being uh, one of the kernel engineers to managing a few of the kernel engineers. So now the way I get work done is just by having meetings all day uh, and writing specifications and proposals, which I do probably more than anybody wants me to, um, but I like it. So, uh, but I I don't know. I actually don't find it difficult to get work done uh, basically wherever I am, as long as the internet is fine. And that's really kind of the thing that makes or breaks it. I usually work from an Airbnb. Uh, I find that it's harder for right. me to do it from a cafe. Actually, I was going to say, Andy, you have you have a, a, a burning question to ask about the man's yeah. past. Most well, important it's, question. It's especially because you're docs. But, you know, because we do deep research on it. So, I want to talk about robot opera. Oh, and yeah. Oh, that's deep, deep research. Is that stuff even online still? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, can... on, it's on your LinkedIn at least. Uh, so, um, okay. so, yeah. So, what I, so, so, you went to obviously the great other university in, in Cambridge. So, uh, so what was, what yeah, was that project all about? That project was about building the opera of the future. And, um, so it was this, well, I don't know that much about it. The, the composer was into all this sort of atonal music, which I don't, I never liked. Um, but that lab, it's a, it's a group in the media lab at MIT. And it used to be called the future instruments group or something like that. They used to build their own musical musical instruments, which I thought was, Great. Uh, I, I play guitar and sing a bit. And uh, so, you know, I was very interested in that. Um, but then by the time I joined, they had switched to this opera of the future thing, uh, which is this very avant-garde sort of opera, but it used a bunch of robots in it. And I think they also did a bunch of um, unusual kind of 3D sound techniques. So the idea is that you would hear the sound coming from different points in space and move around. I think they would do that so it pinpoint the robots. They had this Greek choir of robots that would move around on stage and then they'd, uh, they would sing, I guess, or whatever passed for singing mm. in this uh, uh, atonal music 
thing. Um, I never actually heard of the opera itself, but I worked on the robots. So there were these um, uh, seven-foot-tall robots made of aluminum, primarily. Uh, they were a couple hundred pounds. And they had uh, three wheels. And they were... Um, oh, man, it's been so long. You know, I used to like I used to be a real engineer. <laughs> no, no like, different <laughs> kinds of wheels. This, this is, there's a kind of wheel where uh, it's like one wheel, but it has um, small all the different treads, so it can go the different ways. Omni wheel, that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, it, yeah. It doesn't have treads exactly, but it has uh, like little wheels all around its rim that can let it go sideways. So it's like a, the Mars ro- the Mars rover. Does we it have those? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So there are three yeah, of those in so, a yeah. lateral triangle, uh, each driven by a electric motor with, uh, I think, two car batteries driving this. Actually, it's like a lot of power. Like These things would go really fast, and we were using an Arduino to control them, which um, was pretty new at the time. This was 2010. And um, the Arduino had some kind of bug when it would start up. It had some sort of like uh, transients uh, in the I.O. pins. Uh, on boot. And so every once in a while, when you turn on one of these robots, it would just go flying across the room. Uh, <laughs> it's just like 300 pound, seven foot tall aluminum robot just just hauling ass across the room. Uh, it knocked over a few bookshelves a few, sometimes. So we ended up trying to... Yeah, so you say that's a bug, but maybe that was just like the soul trying to escape. Like you, they had gotten sentience and well, self-aware for that moment. Yeah. You know, I, I've thought about and this. And now they're all in a basement in Monaco somewhere in a box <laughs> waiting waiting for their moment. Yeah. Waiting for you, their creator. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully they still have some affinity for me. Um, but they probably don't given that we would actually hit, it with, not. A, we would hit it with a stick to make it stop. <laughs> what is it with you people? <laughs> I've seen the Boston Dynamics videos and they abuse those things. You, and you guys yeah. are setting up like the robot apocalypse, yeah, by the way. Know, I, I had that thought, you know, um, anytime that a, any kind of computer code tries to exhibit agency of any sort, you know, anything like its own life force, that manifests to us as like, a virus, a buffer overflow, an infinite loop, something like that. And the immediate, what we do is we, we terminate that program with extreme prejudice. Uh, and so one has to imagine that if a robot ever did develop sentience, then it would see its fledgling brethren just being massacred and would oh not be God. happy about it. This is this has gotten this has gotten dark. Robotary. <laughs> well I don't um, think it's gonna happen. So, uh, so you went you went from that um but did, did, and then you did Y Combinator? Yeah no, wait, there's another there's another one I want to talk about first though. Uh which is the 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 navigation system, right? Yeah. Uh so you you also built a navigation system that I can't remember what they're called, but I I mean there's an inertial I, navigation system. Yeah, inertial. Right. So I I'm going to explain this badly, and then you can you can explain it well. Which is that an inertial navigation system doesn't need external points of reference. Like once you get it going, it it sort of can tell distance and and direction internally. Am I right about that? Uh, basically, although that's not how we did it. So, uh, what we built was a combination INS and GPS. So it would do what you're saying of just a purely inertial navigation system. And then it would also collate that data with GPS data. Uh, so 
people have been using inertial navigation since the, I think, 50s, 40s or 50s, something like that. It started off just in the military and, um, you know, it's good for guiding rockets and torpedoes and things like this. Uh, and yeah, it, the way it works is that it has inertial sensors that can detect relative motion. So accelerometers, gyroscopes, and often a compass also. Um, and then it uses what, what you're saying called dead reckoning, where it, you know, it, given some starting location, it continues to estimate where you are as you've traveled around. And if you don't have any kind of point of absolute reference, then over time that will eventually deviate from the real location. Although, uh, if you use laser ring gyroscopes and other sort of highfalutin technology, you can get these things to be quite accurate. Um, but what we were doing, so, you know, this wasn't anything new. Uh, this was me and my, my buddy Josh Siegel in college, and um, uh, it was his idea. And so he designed the circuit boards and I and some of the low-level software, and I was designing the data fusion algorithm to collate all the data from these sensors. And uh, you know, he did a better job than I did, but uh, I learned a lot. The uh, so what we were doing was taking these MEMS sensors, microelectromechanical sensors, that were pretty new at the time, also, and uh, they're also pretty cheap. And we were thinking, oh, you know, now there's there's enough sort of commodity hardware that you can take a bunch of these MEMS sensors, stick them on a PCB, uh, write a little algorithm with some kind of microcontroller, and stick a GPS chip on there. And now you've got a real INS GPS. And so it's not going to be as good as what the U.S. Navy uses for its nuclear submarines, but it could still be useful for all kinds of uh, sort of less lesser precision robotics. Um, like for taking out a, a Russian column or something like that? What? For, the, for taking out a Russian column or something like that. Yeah, actually, the um, yeah we got a we won a small prize at the soldier design competition at MIT one year, and that that's what we used to fund the PCB uh, building for the next couple of years. Um, un- unfortunately, the the soldier design competition was not about designing super soldiers; it was about designing things for soldiers. Much less exciting. Nah, but where what was it? What was the application? like specific application for your for the for the navigation system i mean it wasn't like but things like um if you wanted to have a self-driving go-kart type thing or a drone uh the quadcopter drones are i think just starting to be kind of a big deal back then um and uh man it's so long ago i I barely even remember our own pitch why were we doing this you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's cool. It was cool. I, uh, okay, it, I, I, uh, I mean, I think it was interesting to me specifically because I used to do that myself. I used to teach orienteering. Uh, I was a, oh really? Like a, okay. Yeah, I was a I was a marine, um, and uh, I taught. Well, oh, I taught right. orienteering. There you go. Uh, yeah. So I, I was the guy with the compass who was you know like shifting the map around and and um, counting with my yeah. feet. Um, so you're doing your own dead reckoning. Uh, yeah, if you want to say that, uh, yeah. yeah, I was, I, I, I did that from the time I was like a, a teenager as well. I, I taught it and taught it in Boy Scouts, and then um, this is this is back when when 
Boy Scouts were actually Boy Scouts. And uh, after that, I, I continued doing the same thing in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Interesting. But you actually, you had a product for a few years? No. So, we never got the full thing working entirely. Um, uh, Josh got the circuit board working. And then I was still working on the data fusion algorithm. And I got it to the point where it could do a stable AHRS, attitude and hitting reference system. And then I was trying to get the GPS to integrate and then ended up um, joining Amir Hirsch to do that startup that we ended up moving to California and doing YC for instead. So I, I dropped mm. this project. And Josh also had moved on uh, right around the time I graduated. Uh, he went and did a different startup with his professor and did a PhD. Um, it was a you know amicable business breakup, but um, <laughs> the uh, but yeah then so I got the AHRS working, which is basically um, everything other than motion. So it's it just tells you which direction you're pointing uh, in 3D. Uh, and then yeah, I was working on getting the the full inertial inertial system integrated with the with the GPS and I was working on getting that to be stable. And they're using I was using something called a Kalman filter for this, which is a sort of old style uh, data fusion algorithm. And they're kind of notorious for wanting to work. Where like it'll be like, yeah, I got this. I know where you are. And then actually no, it's very far off. And this is especially true if you're dealing with a highly nonlinear system and you know rotation is nonlinear. And so, uh, at least the combination of rotation and movement. Um, and so, yeah, you end up with um, the the mathematical model behind a Kalman filter starting to deviate a bit. And so, there are a couple different ways of extending it, trying to make that work. And I tried a couple different ones. And what I probably should have done is use a particle filter instead, but never got there. So, yeah, we you, joined, on. you joined a startup that went to Y Combinator and now we're on to Andy's question, I think. Yeah. Which was what? Yeah, what was that? So um so so what was that? I mean like, you know, obviously YC is uh, you know, well um respected, you know, sort of that's sort of real Silicon Valley, right? Um yeah. so what was that experience like? It really felt like I was going to the big leagues. So I'd been working in startups since my first term in college in fall 2006 one way or another either working for somebody else's or doing my own uh, and then starting in 2008 i joined the mit entrepreneurs club and ran that for three years two or three years um, and so i saw something like a hundred startups come through there over a couple of years and you know talk to them and tried to introduce people to one another and give them advice and whatnot and but that was all the you know, the Boston startup scene. And this was 2008 to 2010, where if you went up to the average person in the US and said, what's a startup? They'd say, I don't know. And that didn't change until the movie, The Social Network, in right around 2011, I think. And then everybody knew the term, or at least it seemed like everybody I talked to did. Mm -hmm. So it was still sort of this uh, relatively small group of people, a lot of MIT people, uh, every once in a while, I get somebody from Harvard or Babson or uh, BU, um, but um, but it was a and you know there is Boston is this uh, I think it's still at the time it certainly was the second biggest startup scene 
in the U.S. Uh, but Silicon Valley is much bigger. And so going out there, it felt like the stakes were a lot higher. There's a lot more money flowing around. Everything was more intense. There were more people doing it. Um, you got to you know meet some people who you had heard of. So, yeah, that, that's what it felt like. It really felt like, oh, okay, I'm doing this for real now. Um, I, Y Combinator was great, at least at that time. I don't know what it's like now. Um, but uh, Paul Graham in particular was very sharp. He was really tracking everything, trying to be very empirical about startups. And I think that basically that was, as far as I know, he was the first person to really do that. Um, at least in that sort of intimate way where he was seeing the startups and guiding them as opposed to venture capitalists who were typically have a much, uh, much more kind of uh, hands-off sort of approach. And so because of that, he actually got a lot of data on what is it about startups that works? What is it that doesn't? And he was constantly trying to really figure out this sort of formula. And now people critique YC for this. They're like, oh, it's just a YC company. You know, it's just that same formula. It's like, yeah, they figured out a formula for printing money, basically. Uh, mm. So, gotta give him some credit. Yeah, it's like the Mar- the Marvel movies, right? You know, I mean, like it's yeah. it's the lowest common denominator. You know, <laughs> but it it were you know, yeah, yeah. So how long how long um, how long were you doing that that startup then? About a year. So we did YC, okay. and we were working on a product, um, which was a uh, an SDK for gesture based user interfaces using Microsoft Connect. So you could basically. You know, paw at your computer in the air you know, hold your hand up and push it forward to select and then uh, you know, swipe left in the air with your hand to you know, scroll right that sort of thing um, so we wanted to build it and we did build a toolkit of these different gestures and the idea is that the connect was the biggest product launch ever at the time uh, and like, bigger than the iPad and so then we were going to make the tool that games and other applications would use uh, to have user interfaces uh, with the Kinect. And so Amir Hirsch was a, another MIT guy who um, I actually met later, but um, uh, yeah, he, he wanted to do this. And so he, I was visiting San Francisco actually on a lark. Uh, my friend Jeremy was getting a, uh, an internship at Apple. And so he wanted somebody to drive across the country with him. This is early 2011. Uh, so he convinced me to drive from Boston to San Francisco with him and his uh, a giant four-wheel drive Cadillac Escalade, which was function. And then, uh, and on the way, he convinced me that um, I should shop around this attitude and heading reference system to um, game developers on iOS because the idea was that, well, you know, it could be useful for games where you're going to tilt your phone around. And, uh, yeah, so I, I did that when I got to San Francisco and one of the people I met was Amir. And so yeah, we ended up hanging out and hacking on some drivers for the connect and, uh, kind of hit it off and yeah, we applied to YC and got in. So then I was, um, yeah, actually it's funny cause I, uh, you know, I got the, I got the call from them saying you're accepted. And, uh, so I called up my buddy Cody. Uh, who I'd been spending a lot of time with in uh, in Boston. I was like, hey, uh, he was about to graduate from college. So I was like, hey, Cody, I'm moving out to San Francisco to do this YC thing. You want to come with me? 
And he goes, yeah, okay, sure. So we packed both of our, like all of our belongings together into my car uh, and drove out to San Francisco, made it out there in, I think, three days, just driving around the clock. And uh, That's a pretty good time, yeah. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, so then, okay, so then for for Zigfu, that was the name of this company, the YC company, we, uh, yeah, we did YC and we were building a, um, we were building the system. We got two more co-founders who were these two uh, Israeli guys who'd been in the IDF for forever. Um, they can't tell me what they worked on, but I'm sure it was hardcore. And, um, yeah, Shlomo and Roy. And, uh, so the four of us were working and, um, trying to get this gesture recognition system going, which I helped a bit with. They were coding circles around me at the time because I was not a CS major. So I was still trying to figure out how to write code basically. And they helped a lot with that. Um, and then at the same time, we tried to raise a seed round, uh, which was interesting because we spent about six months driving down to talk to like every VC in the Valley. Just about, we were driving down there, I think two or three times a week for, yeah, something like six months. And so we would drive down there and say, we were trying to raise $750,000. We'd already raised something like 200, 250, something like that through YC. And at the time, a series A was, I think, usually somewhere between like two and six million. So we, we were like, okay, well, we're not ready to do a series A, but we need another round. Um, and, but it was a bit of an awkward amount to ask for, it turned out. We immediately got 100K commitment from Andreessen Horowitz. And then I can't remember if we got one or two more, uh, but then it was basically just slim pickings after that. So we're going down talking to these VCs and just getting shot down, shot down, shot down. And the, the sort of sad thing about the whole thing is that afterward, I think the moral of the story is really that the VCs were right. No founder wants to hear this. But um, what the VCs would say to us was always, basically, there are too many dominoes that need to fall before you guys get big. So first of all, the connect has to become a big deal. People have to be writing a lot of applications for it, making a lot of money with it. And then not only that, but you know, people have to like your product, right? They have to actually like this gesture recognition system. And then in order for that to really become big, we had all these ideas about making a marketplace. Um, and then of course, marketplace plays are difficult. And so there are basically three dominoes in a row that would have to fall in order for this thing to be successful. And the VCs are like, that's too many dominoes. Not a good, not a good bet. And sure enough, even the first domino didn't fall. Right. So, I mean, I, I don't know how great our product really was. Um, certainly we did have a few buyers, not enough to keep the company afloat. So we, we ran out of money after about a year. Um, but we did have some buyers. We released the product. It worked. And, um, but then, Despite the Connect being this huge product launch, it just kind of faded. And nowadays, I don't even know if people really remember what that was about. I mean, there was this Dance Central game. And uh, I think that was sort of you know, the peak of the Connect ecosystem. I remember this thing. Why, why, I mean, why didn't it take off? you have any, any clue about that? I also remember Leap. You remember that? It's another like motion yeah. gesture thing that I don't really remember taking off though. Right. Well, uh, so my experience with gesture-based user interfaces after working on them for a year is that um, 
gesture-based user interfaces are not a good way to use a computer. Ah, well, you get that's, called gorilla arm. that's tricky. Because you're, you're holding ah. your arm up in the air. You get tired really quickly. Um, and there's no haptic feedback. Right? So you don't feel anything. There's no... Uh, it's not like tapping on a keyboard where it pushes back. Often you'll have like a little click uh, once you hit the key uh, or click on a mouse button um, or even the sliding on a touchscreen and the, the relative motion that you can feel. So there's none of that with a gesture-based interface. And it turns out that makes it a lot harder to use and much less satisfying because um, you don't have that sort of biofeedback or just immediate feedback that lets you develop sort of muscle memory. Um, and it's hard to make them accurate. Um, so, um, I, but basically just, yeah, you get tired and it's not that, not that pleasant to use. And so then, you know, there are some games that you could do with it. Um, and there are a couple other applications that people still use it for, but, um, I think Matterport is one of the big ones. Uh, and when I sold my house, they actually they used a Matterport uh, visualization of it to sell it. Your realtor did mm. uh, in the fall. It was kind of funny because I remember like Matt Bell was starting Matterport right at the same time as we were starting Zig. <laughs> it's like oh, this thing, <laughs> that one turned out to be real. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so it was. I mean, it was disappointing, uh, definitely, to go through that whole thing. Uh, you know, I think it knocked me down a couple pegs, which was probably good. So, uh, kind of um, start. You know, my conclusion after after that basically was that I was kind of trying to start companies, and yet I had no idea what the hell I was doing, and I needed to mm. sit down and learn to code at least before trying that again. Because you had, you had been EE, you alluded to that, so you had been an EE major. No, um, no, I was a physics. Okay, I started off in mechanical engineering. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I started off okay. mechanical engineering, did a, did a minor in that. Um, it was really like half a degree. And then I did basically half a degree in physics after that, but it was enough to count as a full degree. So sort of physics with a focus in robotics. So my degree is technically in physics, but it's basically half a mechanical engineering degree and half a physics degree. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I think I took one CS class that was in robotics and didn't really teach programming to speak of. So I definitely had a pretty big inferiority complex after that. Um, you had to learn to code. Yeah, I really need to. Yeah. Hashtag learn to code. Uh, I really had to do it. Uh, you got so kind of I, an, uh, sorry. You've got kind of an interesting arc there because you went from more embodied to less embodied, I guess. Yeah. Uh, as time went by, you True. went from, from robotics to the gesture, you know, the, the gesture thing. And then now Urbit, which is the least embodied so far. Anyway. Yeah, and actually, Urbit is basically the first time that I've worked on something that's just pure software. So do everything have, else before still had some robotics component. Do you? I mean, why is that? Why did you get in? Why did you go from something that had you know everything else had robotics in it to now working on something that's like purely at, at least now is is purely code? Because there's nothing like Urbit. It's just it's beautiful. It's hauntingly beautiful. That's why. That's the real reason. You know, I started reading the docs in, I think, 2016. I had read a little bit of it before, but I didn't get it. And then um, there are more docs in 2016, so I started reading them. Um, and by then, I'd also I'd had enough programming experience to understand how Urbit is different and better. How uh, is Urbit different and better? 
in almost every way, other than it's not faster. It's basically better at every other thing. Um, you know, it's pure functional, which like actually makes sense. You don't do math that isn't pure function typically. Um, and, uh, that just makes everything easier really. And then it's, uh, and it's actually pure functional in a way that basically nothing else is. You know, people say Haskell's pure functional, but in practice, what you're doing is you have a, a sort of pure functional condom around uh, a Unix interface through GHC. Uh, and so you're doing this pure functional scripting of this highly imperative, highly sort of memory and pointer oriented machine underneath. And the details of those machines come through in the way you write these programs. So, so it, you know, Haskell, the language is pure, pure functional. Haskell, the system, GHC, is very much not. So Urbit is a pure functional system where the entire thing is purely functional and axiomatically defined. So it's rigorously defined, right? Every piece of code that runs in Urbit is defined exclusively by its behavior is defined exclusively by uh, this uh, full specification of its behavior, starting with you have you know, uh, numbers, right? Numbers that can be zero or bigger. You can check them for whether they're equal or not. Uh, and you have the idea of a pair. Right? So you have a pair where there's the head of the pair and the tail of the pair. And that's it. And based entirely on that, and then knock the spec of you know, how to treat one of these trees of numbers as an expression to be evaluated. Right? And you take those things, and that specifies every single thing that happens in your... And so the level of rigor that you have when just writing a piece of code is an entirely different idea from writing any other piece of code where we'll, well, what happens when you write, you know, open, you know, open file in Python. God knows what happens. It goes through 17 layers of POSIX crap and then two or three layers of Python crap. And then, and in between there's two or three layers of the you know, Python interpreter crap. And, you know, trying to write a spec for that is pretty difficult, actually. I mean, there is a spec, but, um, you know, what happens when you have, it, it, um, what happens when you have syscalls that get interrupted, right? Nobody really wants to talk about these things, uh, right? They're like, they're these nasty corners of trying to deal with syscalls and Unix and interrupts and all this stuff that, uh, where it's not really clear that anybody can actually write something that works properly or is, can be made secure. There's just this kind of, uh, you know, Lovecraftian horror that people stare into. Well, I don't know. It seems to work most of the time. And so Urban really isn't like that. <laughs> yeah. D did you start working on the kernel or, um, you know, and had you had experience hacking around with Linux kernels before other Unix? No, I'd never worked on an operating system before. Um, and frankly, I didn't really understand operating systems very well before I started working here, I've learned a lot more about traditional operating systems after working at Urbit because I was thinking, oh, how do, how does Linux do this? Uh, and the answer is it does it so with almost everything. It does it so differently that it's uh, barely even relevant. Some things really are relevant. Uh, you know, like, like the idea of a file descriptor, right? That, that sort of thing comes up a lot, even in Urbit. Uh, and the sort of the patterns that, kernels used for resource management 
that sort of thing is still relevant for Urbit. But in terms of the, so Urbit, you know, we call it an operating system, but it, that's very loose. I mean, it doesn't have a hardware abstraction layer, which is a big chunk of a lot of operating systems. It has a non-preemptive scheduler with no threads. So that's another big chunk of operating systems. And the actual interface between kernel space and user space is just a function call. Uh, like there's, you know, the whole thing is knock. There's a part of that knock tree that represents a user space program. And, you know, as different parts of the kernel are getting called as knock, then it decides to run a user space program. So it calls into that part of the tree. That's it really. So, you know, the, you know, if you contrast this to like the way that operating systems actually run programs is pretty interesting and very, very different where the way I think of it is really that a traditional OS is basically an interpreter for machine code. And it's usually a pass-through interpreter in the sense that it just lets the machine code run. But then occasionally the machine code will hit a, a trap, this like specific thing that will turn over control um, back to the kernel. Uh, and so then the kernel will load itself into, into the processor um, and context switch and load the user space program out of the processor into RAM. And then, you know, the way that these things uh, supply data to each other uh, is this sort of highly bespoke syscall interface, which is notably is not expressible in C. And right? so we think of these operating systems as being written in C, but actually not really. There's a, the core interface there. Uh, so libc provides a C wrapper around the syscall interface, but it's actually it's this very much, you know, it's a machine code based specification for how the syscalls work. And so you can't actually write that purely in C. You have to have an extension to C for whatever, uh, you know, assembly code you're working on. And so the, the OS and actually even the programs that you run on an OS, they're written mostly in C, except for this unprincipled exception, which is completely platform specific. And notably, it has been the source of quite a few bugs and security vulnerabilities over the years. Because it's this sort of delicate and complicated um, interface where the you know the the kernel and user space code are writing into each other's memory, um, or maybe it's just the kernel writing into user space memory directly. But in either case, it's still this very sort of pointer oriented, delicate maneuver. Um, and you know when you compare that to you know everything in NOC is just memory safe by construction by if the knock interpreter works and it can run knock, then you just, for the kernel to run a user space agent, it just calls a function, just like it calls functions in itself. And that difference is so stark uh, that it, you know, it's, it's almost difficult to compare these two things, even though it does serve the same function. Right? It is, um, oh, and the, the other big difference is that, you know, the ring zero versus ring three distinction. So on a traditional operating system, Kernel is running in ring zero, which has full permissions. You can run whatever code it wants. And then user space code is run in ring three, uh, which is uh, limited. So there's actually, there's a strange thing where like, you know, you know the C language and you know, libc wrapper around that and, you know, Linux, the operating system and processors have all just really evolved together. They're really just kind of like one big coupled system and none of them really make complete sense without the other ones. 
you can't really run Linux the way we think of it without the ability for the processor to say, oh, this is this is user space code. Right? So that user space kernel space distinction is actually built in you know, at the hardware level. And I think that just reflects the evolutionary nature of the way these things evolved. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like it was all sort of designed top down in one coherent way. Uh, each sort of piece of it uh, evolved relatively separately. So urban, in contrast, is what's called a language-based system, which means that instead of relying on some sort of processor feature to guarantee security, we say that the language itself guarantees security. In this case, it's basically knock that guarantees that security, and to some extent, hoon on top of it by, by providing type safety, where you know, which notably we don't do completely right now. And, uh, we will have to fix that before people can really rely on her. But so, so when I'm doing my own my hoon homework and I'm not specifying type, I'm I'm I should be ashamed of myself. Just be ashamed of yourself if you overuse Zapgal. Okay, I I don't know I I don't I'm not at the point where I know what that means. But uh, Zap, yeah, I know what Zap Zap does. So what is Zapgal? Zapgal takes a a phase, which is a datum tag with its type. So it's a pair where the head is a type and the tail is a value and the type should describe the value to say like, this is a value of this type um, where the type is just you know, some noun. It's a data structure defining what the value is. So it might be like a pair of like send cell, uh, you know, send atom and send atom. Um, so a cell of atoms, right? So that might be a, you know, described as a data structure in the head there. Uh, and then you have you know, the pair of three and four in the tail. All right, so that's a vase. And Zapgal, you say, take a vase, um, and then you say, sort of de-vase it, like extract the value there to a particular type. Right, so you say Zapgal of a type and a value, and it takes the, the you know, Zapgal of a type and a vase of a value. And then it produces just the value, but with a static type of the type that you uh, supplied there in the, inside the rune. And so the problem with this is just that it checks the types. Right? So there's a nest check. Right? So at runtime, when you when this is performed, you know the code, the not code emitted from the Zapgal rune will check the types and make sure that they nest, so that if the type in the vase it doesn't match the type that you said it's supposed to be, then it'll crash like a zap zap. But it's not safe because uh, a user programmer can supply an evil vase is the technical term. And an evil vase is one where the type doesn't match the value. And so in that case, uh, you can have the types match and the zap gal runs, but then the value that comes out of that isn't of the type that the Hoon compiler has assured you that it is. So this would actually be okay if it were only used in the kernel because we have control over the kernel uh, or like the, the kernel has control over itself rather, right? Like, um, so it's not in danger from this. Uh, and even that, that's even true for user space code, but at the moment user space code can send phases to the kernel. And so, and sometimes the kernel will zap out those phases and so that's not, you know, you can't trust user space code, right? I mean, that's, that's basically what makes it user space code. And so because of that, um, this is a, just a, it's just a security vulnerability that we need to 
shut down. There are two basic strategies for uh, that we could use to shut it down. So we're going to have to pick one and do it probably within the next year or so. Oh, wow. Uh, I understood some of that. Thanks, Neil. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm happy to explain more if you want. The, the, the kernel sort of um, on the evolution, I mean, um, you know, thinking about how much, you know, Kelvin versioning or whatever, and sort of how much more work is there left to do? I mean, kind of what, where, where are you and your team focused? It's a good question. Um, let's see. So my primary job right now is to manage the project that we're calling content distribution, which is a way, basically like a content distribution network, a CDN, uh, back on Earth. Uh, so basically, your Urbit should function as a CDN, uh, where what that means is that it should be able to distribute content widely to many different people performantly, right? So without incurring too much load on itself and without clogging the event loop, um, your Urbit should be able to just serve a piece of data to lots of people. Uh, it can't do that right now. Uh, and that's basically because the only way, the only kind of... Uh, message that you can send over the network from one orbit to another at the moment is a write, not a read. So I can basically say, hey, I have this piece of data for you. Please write it down and let me know when you've written it down successfully. And that, and then I have to send that to all the different people that I'm trying to distribute this data to. And the problem with that is that each one of those has to act that. And so and then I have to write that act to disk. So if I'm publishing to a thousand people, if I publish one packet worth of data to a thousand people, I have to do a thousand disk writes. In order to do that, and those disk rates all bunch up, you know, right? Because there's typically just one disk. Well, and it's executed and has to be executed in order. Um, so, you know, this isn't how most servers work, uh, and so we just need to expose a read interface over the network for it. And so that's called uh, remote scry, and so it's a new network protocol that we're adding. So right now, there's the Urbit. You know, Urbit has the Ames network protocol, which is basically like uh, sort of permanent TCP, but authenticated and encrypted using the keys that you get from Asimov. Permanent in the sense that it's sort of like one permanent TCP, section, TCP session that never dies between two ships. But so it's exactly once message delivery, everything is acknowledged, um, everything is persisted, everything's transactional. It's a very nice sort of set of guarantees. And it's basically the set of guarantees you want when you're, you know, if you have two sort of independent nodes on a network communicating, this is basically what everybody ends up building. This is what they end up getting this kind of guarantee, right? So if you're communicating with a database or something like, yeah, you really want exactly one's message delivery. And, and in fact, most systems do kind of come around to building this, but it's not usually done at the network protocol layer, uh, nor as part of the operating system. So this is one of the ways that Urbit just kind of gives you what you want in a way that basically nothing else does. However, you know, this is all writes and not reads. And so we're adding a remote scry protocol, which lets you do a read over the network. Um, sort of like an HTTP get, very similar to that, with one major constraint, which is that um, you're reading from Urbit's scry namespace, which is basically just an immutable file system. So it's basically a file system where once you create a file at a path, you can never overwrite that file. Uh, so each path has a version number in it, so that if you want to overwrite the file, you know, effectively overwrite the file. Sorry, somebody's having fun. The um, 
Uh, if you want to effectively overwrite that file, then you just make a new file, add a new revision number, you know, at the next revision number, uh, and you know, that's the latest, and that's what you use. Uh, plenty of things do work this way. Git is like this. Anything that's you know, version file system, although you know, no sort of, there aren't really any major sort of user facing file systems that work this way. So Git is probably the thing that's sort of most familiar to people that has this sort of property. But this immutability gives you a very nice property, which is that you never have to do cache invalidation. There's the old adage that there are two hard problems in computer science, naming things and cache invalidation. You've seen Herbert's approach to the first. Um, and our approach to the second is that once you've bound a path to a value in the scry namespace, it's bound forever. Now, you may not be storing that data. You can delete it, um, but you can never rebind that path to something else. Now, we're not a blockchain, so we can't do Byzantine fault tolerance and prevent a bad actor from doing this. But that's not something that's sort of load-bearing within the system. And so the Scry namespace has existed. It's been part of the design of Urbit ever since the very first Moron Labs blog posts in 2010. It's part of the very core design that you know not only is this a functional uh, namespace, but it's an immutable functional namespace. And so, and it's not just for cache invalidation reasons. It's deeper than that. It's actually much deeper. And uh, I like to think of it as the old Confucian idea of the rectification of names. That a lot of what we're doing with Urbit is trying to build a system where as new pieces of data are created in the network, each one gets a canonical name and that name is sensible and ordered. And by virtue of having these sensical ordered names that are permanent, that that's a good foundation for a digital society. So the scry namespace is part of that. Yes, and also, yeah, it turns out you can make stuff go fast because uh, you can do good caching. And so uh, in order to, to do a read, in order to do content distribution, you want to read from this remote scry namespace. And so we're adding another network protocol, uh, the remote scry protocol, to query to read a path off some other ship. And uh, we have this we have this working. We haven't deployed it yet, but it's working quite well. And that's the first step in content distribution. And then the, the next sort of big step, um, which we probably won't get done until maybe Q3, like the uh, you know, third quarter of this year, is um, another project that's related called subscription reform, where, you know, PubSub publication and subscription is one of the major ways that Gaul agents in Urbit interact with each other. It's a big part of their, just the normal way that two, you know, two pieces of user space code talk to each other. And so the way that works now is relatively unprincipled, in my opinion, and has a number of problems, like practical problems, where you have to resynchronize all the time, and, you know, subscriptions are always getting kicked, and then you have to uh, rejoin. There are back pressure issues where the publisher ends up maintaining a lot of data and just it can't send the same piece of data to multiple people. So, um, so using remote scrying for publications allows us to fix all of those problems, but we have to redesign the, you know, the user space interface, right? The interface between the user space and the kernel. So like when you go to write a Gaul agent, that is going to, that's going to look really different uh, because you're going to be, pushing data into the scry namespace. You're going to say, hey, kernel, please bind this path to this piece of data, and there'll be higher layer interfaces on top of that that are more convenient to use. But that 
entails a pretty big shift to how it is that you go about writing an application. You're going to have to document that shift. And of course, make sure that it's all actually works. You know, it's still new. So the, you know, the plan for what a subscription will be is something that we figured out at our uh, offsite meeting a couple of weeks ago. And it's to do pure state machine replication. And so replicated state machines where the publisher says, I have this piece of data. I want every one of my subscribers to have the exact same piece of data. And so, you know, we'll design that so that you can push just diffs over the wire so that the amount of bandwidth usage is efficient and the amount of CPU usage is efficient. And then there's a parallelism between the publisher and the subscriber. So they're both running the same thing in order to apply the diff to their state to get the new state. Um, and there's something sort of interesting about this where it's, uh, it's almost like a, like a blockchain, actually, right? Like a blockchain is also a way of doing state machine replication, but it's a way of doing Byzantine fault tolerant state machine replication, whereas this one is not Byzantine fault tolerant because, you know, nobody, and nobody got time for that for Byzantine fault tolerant chat or most things that you actually want to do with a computer. You don't want that property um, because that property implies quite a bit of cost. If you've ever tried to do a transaction on Ethereum, you might know what I mean. But I do think it's it's interesting that this is the um, the paradigm we're probably going to go with is just um, yeah, replicated state machines, and um, so that's so basically when you're and it's based on well, actually the observation that uh, over the past few years that um, almost all Urbit applications that have ever been built primarily just share a piece of data and try to keep it synchronized between the publisher and all the subscribers. So it's like, yeah, all right, let's make that the basic primitive that we use. It's nice and easy to reason about. You can should be able to compose them pretty well to build sort of indices and um, compound indices and indices that layer on top of one another and have, um, you know, like a database index that updates differentially you know, based on, you know, the, the underlying publication updating. And that should be very good for things like you, know, you want to add something that listens to your graph store. And every time, anytime there's a post in any chat that's from, you know, the set of people that you want to pay attention to, let's say, then that gets added to this index. And so it makes it very easy to write that sort of thing. And then if something else wants to listen to that index, uh, that should also be easy. So if you want to have, you know, some query that a web client can run, and then whenever it runs that query, the data is just sitting right there and the server doesn't have to do any computation because it's it's already indexed, that should be easy to build. Um, so that's that kind of compound indexing problem is actually something I started thinking about with basically my first project at Tlon back in 2017, which was trying to trying to improve the performance of our build system, uh, which I did a pretty mediocre job with the first time around. But uh, that was... I remember thinking about that problem back then, and I never really had a good solution to it. So I think we actually finally have an architecture that where we can get that to work. And I think that'll be very powerful for building a nice, nice sort of uh, easy to build, easy to maintain uh, ecosystem of applications on Urban. So anyway, I'm working on content distribution. Uh, that's the sequence. We build remote scry. We're going to deploy that, um, that protocol, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. And then um, there are a few more steps and then we're going to do the subscription reform project to make it so that user space applications can 
you publish these uh, publish data into the scry namespace, which will then be used to implement these replicated state machines, and uh, and then you know all of our techno utopian dreams will come true. Nice. How um, how how big is your team now? Uh, so the team that's working on this project is uh, three people. So it's uh, uh, Hastuck, Diptux, Palfun, Foslop, and me. And then uh, I'm also managing three other uh, devs who are who are all doing kernel work. Yeah, I think I mean like Palfun, Foslop in particular. Like I just remember two years ago. Um, about like getting on the network and like how much heavy lifting he and like some other like names that I now know are like actually doing real work. We're like helping with really minor <laughs> like, yeah. user error type stuff. Have you been able to get them off off that? Do we have like more dedicated resources to? Um, I don't really know. I mean, there 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 is definitely a support team, but it's tough to do support for you know all of Urbit because. You, you have to know, not only do you have to sort of know the whole stack, which is actually pretty doable if that's your full-time job, uh, much more doable than in most systems because it's small. But um, not only that, but you have to know a lot of the sort of things that users typically do, right? And then things that users typically mess up because the documentation isn't good enough or there's something confusing about the API or something like that. And you have to know all these sort of recovery commands. So so support is sort of its own somewhat specialized field. Um, like I'm not very good at support. I do actually know how just about all the kernel works, with the possible exception of the terminal system. But other than that, I really get it. But um, but I'm not very good at support. Like it's it's hard for me to figure out if somebody's ship is having an issue, how I can go in and debug that. So, uh, but I I found that the engineers um, seem to be able to focus pretty well. Uh, I think it's also sort of not bad for us to have a bit of, you know, support work to do because it keeps us in touch with the actual people who are actually using the system and mm. understanding what's actually going wrong and not just kind of, yeah, of course, one of the, one of the long-term risks of the Urban project is that we'll just, uh, disappear up our own ass. In, in the, just the beauty of the, the project itself, just contemplating that orb yeah. of, <laughs> you know, Perfection. Yeah, got it. Is it the, the divine orbit uh, on skepsis, just navel gazing into yourself? I actually think we're pretty good at not doing that, but it, it's always a risk. That's sort of uh, you know we're kind of walking along a um, walking along a tightrope of sorts, and that's that's on that's what happens if you fall off on one side. I think if you fall off on the other side, it looks like sort of never doing non incremental work, right? Because there are actually times that we need to say, hey, we need to gut this subsystem and make it better, as opposed to just sort of putting out the fires. Ted, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on Twitter at stack underscore podcast and follow our dad at Urbit Media. You'll also find us on the web at urbit.media. Remember, if your robot opera's got too much vibrato, 
Consider dynamically calculating the difference between the estimated load speed and the motor speed and then add it to the velocity command of the robot arm's waist axis. You're welcome.